from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Brett Gamboa. Brett grew up in a family where his father was a professional baseball coach. Brett's early interest in baseball faded, however, and his life began to drift, barely finishing high school after his family disintegrated from divorce. He ended up going into the Navy. After the Navy, Brett got involved in the music scene, and it was at this point in his life that he seriously considered the Baha'i faith as a way of life. I started the interview by asking Brett to describe his life growing up. I grew up in Santa Clarita, California. Mm-hmm. It's just a little bit north of the San Fernando Valley, about 25 miles north of Los Angeles. My family, I guess, moved around a little bit. I was in the womb in Canada, in Stratford, Canada, for a little while. And then my parents moved to the Bay Area, where I was a young child. But most of my early life was in Santa Clarita. I went to Saugus High School. My father had been raised in the valley, and my mother had been raised all over, but had wound up in California and she met my father at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. It was suburban. It was, mm-hmm. I think my family investigated a number of neighborhoods that were outlying, like beyond the valley, because at that time it was too expensive for them to move there. And so there was a number of new valleys kind of building lots and lots of houses scattered around L.A., and they liked Santa Clarita the best. It seemed the most subdued. Yeah, I guess as a teenager, that's why we liked it the least, because it seemed the most subdued. But, yeah, it was good schools and, you know, regular suburban people. Yeah. What were the circumstances that your parents were in Canada? My father is in professional baseball, and he was drafted out of, the, out of Santa Barbara, but sort of a low draft. My father was a little short, probably, to, and, a, and really good athlete, but not quite good enough to make the major league. So he played a little bit of professional baseball and then semi-pro baseball. And he caught on as sort of a player coach on a team in Stratford, Ontario, in an old professional Canadian baseball league. Mm-hmm. So my parents had driven up there one summer, I think the very summer my, my mother was pregnant with me. And I think they were there for about two years, for maybe four or five months in the summer, and then they would drive back across to Los Angeles. So mm. growing up, my father's always traveled a lot for baseball to different areas of the country, whether he was in the minor or major leagues. Mm-hmm. During the summers and falls, until the baseball season would end, and then occasionally he would go down to the Caribbean or Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, where they have winter leagues. So he's worked down there in the winter times. But in the summer, and particularly when he was just ending his playing days, he went up to Canada to play in a professional league there. And then he would come back and work in a variety of jobs at the time over the winter. 
He had grown up in California, and I ended up being born in Van Nuys Hospital in the San Fernando Valley. Mm-hmm. But right around the end of his playing career, that was in Canada, and that brought us up there for a couple of summers. I see. But then after that, he stayed in California with my mom and me, and then pretty soon there were four sisters. And so he got into the scouting and coaching side of baseball, which he's still doing now. Mm-hmm. And what was family life like? Family life was really good until I guess I was about 10. And my parents had an, what seemed to me an extreme fight from out of nowhere when I was about 10. And I think they divorced when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand much of what was going on, but everything had seemed good, lots of sports and recreation and getting awards in school and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there was the flying coffee cup across the kitchen and lots of yelling and screaming, mm-hmm. a seeming debate that came out of nowhere whether I was going to live here or there mm-hmm. and what would be done with my sisters. So uh, up until the time I was 10, I was very close to both of my parents. Mm-hmm. And after that, it changed pretty radically. Yeah. What were your interests growing up? I was into baseball. That's mm. what my father was into. So from the time I was really, really young, the sense was that I would grow up and play professional baseball. And I was on the field a lot with my father as he would move around and work with different teams and players. And my father was a specialist in hitting. He was a hitting instructor, and he would move between different teams, especially in the Milwaukee Brewers organization. Mm. And I would tag along with him on road trips and on some of his scouting trips. And my father would run professional, like baseball camps for coaches and players at the different recreational leagues during the winter to make extra money. And so I would attend a lot of these. And I was really avidly interested in baseball. And my father is into a number of other sports. And I think, you know, I ended up in that direction as well. Mm. And so you were playing baseball in high school? Yeah, I was playing baseball up until, I guess, ninth grade. And... At that time, that was just a little bit after my parents were divorced. And although I had really gravitated toward my father right after the divorce, and it was actually left up to me who I would live with. And at the time, I chose my father, knowing that my four sisters would go to live with my mother. And I guess it didn't seem right that he would be alone and that the six of us would be together. So I went to live with him, and I was a lot closer to him than I was to my mother. But after some time, that changed a little bit, and we became more estranged. And I think just maybe it was natural kind of odds. And I moved away from baseball because it represented so much of what he stood for, and I guess I just wasn't going to stand for that. Mm. So I actually got into swimming a lot in high school, and I was surfing a lot. And my mother was a swimmer and had been quite good when she was young. I think I felt like at a certain point I wasn't going to please my father Mm -hmm. and that the sum of expectations had descended upon me, especially because we were living together alone. Mm -hmm. And when I didn't feel like I could do what was expected, I kind of dropped most of what he really loved. And and that was... That was difficult. I mean, it was yeah. difficult. I don't know. I, I, it's probably a time in my life where I have as many regrets as any other. Sure. And what did you do after high school? High school didn't go especially well. I was dismissed from high school, actually, mm. a couple of times. Mm. And I was living alone throughout most of high school because, as I mentioned, my father would 
be away during the summers and falls for professional baseball, but then he would go to manage in Puerto Rico during a winter league. Mm -hmm. That left me almost exclusively by myself. And to some degree, in not choosing to live with my mother, I'd burn some bridges in, in seeing her and my sisters a little bit in the winter times. So I ended up spending a lot of time alone, and that gave way to a number of distractions that didn't include school. Mm. I barely got through high school. And toward the end of high school, I didn't have a lot of options in terms of what I would do next, in terms of career or college. And so I joined the Navy, and I was in the Navy for about two years. I went away to Florida, I think for about two months, and then from there to San Diego. What was it like being in the Navy? It was not very fun. Mm. It was very much an escape, I think, for me. Mm -hmm. And when I went in, I had a great expectation that this would be a way to take a couple of years and see a lot of the world. And I didn't seem to have very many prospects at the time for, for just getting away and out of the home. And it seemed like a really easy way to do that. Mm -hmm. And I had the misfortune of enlisting and being stationed upon a ship that was in dry dock, being completely retrofitted over the course of about a year and a half. <laughs> so I think I spent close to a year and a half in San Diego, which was nice, but on a ship that didn't ever go out other than to make circles in the San Diego Harbor to test various equipment. I think by the end of my term, we had made a trip up into Canada and out to Hawaii, but the traditional sort of West Pack or East Pack where one would go to a number of different countries never happened. Mm. So what did you do after the Navy stint? After the Navy, I came back home to Los Angeles, and I got a job with a couple of friends of mine, at the time Baha'i friends of mine. And I started to play a lot of music. Yeah, I guess I spent a lot of time. I was living in Hollywood, California. Almost everybody in Hollywood is pursuing music or acting. Mm -hmm. And I picked music and was playing guitar and writing songs and playing in a little band that was playing mostly reggae and blues music. Mm -hmm. That was a really special time in some ways. It was the first time that I was out on my own and not in the Navy and I wasn't going to school. Strangely, it really started, I started to ask, well, it was the first time in a long time, maybe since I had been a very small child, real hard questions about why I was living the life I was, mm -hmm. and started to think and investigate a little bit spirituality. Mm -hmm. Now, you said this band was with Baha'i friends? I was playing music with some Baha'i friends, mostly non-Baha'i friends. I was in touch with a couple of Baha'i friends. I first met a Baha'i in, I guess, junior high was the first time I met one. I think there was one in my school growing up. And toward the latter part of high school, when I was you know, completely estranged from school and from my father, certainly, I came into contact with the Baha'is. It was, I don't know, it was random, but it was really fortunate. Mm -hmm. And so I came into a, a close contact with one Baha'i family in particular, and that preceded my time in the Navy. So what was your relationship with the Baha'i faith during that time? There was one Baha'i friend of mine, and I didn't know he was a Baha'i for a long time, but he would wear a shirt 
to school occasionally, like junior high and high school especially, and the shirt was black and it simply read, One Planet, One People, Please. And this was at a time before, like before the United Colors of Benetton or before it seemed especially cool or vogue to champion unity of, uh, of people. Mm. And I remember thinking that it was really cool, but also thinking that it was I guess more importantly, really brave that he wore this kind of shirt around or that he he wanted to represent it. And I remember asking him about it and him saying it was something from the Baha'is, something from the Baha'i faith. And that was probably where I left it. And then I was in this friend's home. His name was Louis Brathwaite. And he lived in Santa Clarita. And he was, as I mentioned, I think he was the only Baha'i in my school. And I was at his home one day and he had ran upstairs to get something. We were just going to play basketball or do whatever it was we did. And there was a book that simply said Baha'i Prayers on it, and it was sitting on the piano in the front room, the living room. And I remember being somewhat spellbound, only because it was this book of prayers that had been casually left on the piano as if somebody had just picked it up and said some prayers and put it down as if that was a really natural thing. Mm. And that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, the only context I had, you know, from Catholic background, which I liked fine, was that religion was something that could happen at church and it happened Sunday. And then there was a practice of being maybe a good person, but not not kind of sitting around saying prayers. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him about it. And I don't know what it was, because he was only loosely affiliated with a Baha'i workshop. I mean, he would attend, I don't think all the time, we didn't live especially close to the heart of the L.A. Basin, but he was involved with the L.A. Baha'i Youth Workshop, and he invited me to come with him when I had asked about this prayer book. I went a couple weeks later and met some really wonderful people, I guess, but more importantly than than who I met, I I came in, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Baha'i Youth Workshop, the Baha'i Youth Workshops, the first one originated in Los Angeles, and it was essentially, well, I'll give it to you through my eyes as, as a 16-year-old in high school. I came in and there were a number of junior high and high school age youth, maybe a couple of college youth, but mostly people about 13 to 19, and they were performing dances and songs and doing drama and most of it was dancing, and most of it was geared irrepressibly around the oneness of mankind. They would do these dances that had at their heart eliminating racial prejudice, foregrounding the equality of women and men, the need to stay away from drugs and alcohol, I mean, all sorts of things that seemed really virtuous. I guess the thing that stuck out was that this group of kids were really about something. Hmm. And when I say about something... That's mindful of the fact that every kid who's 16, 17, 18 is desperately about something. Mm. But usually it's about a band or about the sport that they play or, you know, chasing boys or girls or whatever. Mm -hmm. And these people, at least for those few hours that I was in their presence, really were about the oneness of mankind and actively trying to change the world. I think that my only exposure to any of that kind of thinking had been ideal and not as practical and as up close as this. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my first day at the Baha'i Youth Workshop, these teenagers 
sat down on a floor with no leader, with no adult kind of running the show, and they just started to say and sing prayers. Mm. And somebody said the short healing prayer, Thy name is my healing, O my God, and remembrance of Thee is my remedy. I had the sort of chills that run up one's spine when one is Mm -hmm. having a religious experience. Mm -hmm. And it was because it was wholly unanticipated, it, it really made me question why it had happened or what I felt and the nature of it. Mm-hmm. And that day that I left the Baha'i Youth Workshop, I don't think that anybody thought anything of me or probably they just assumed that I was a Baha'i who was in town visiting. But I had asked somebody about the faith and about something that was read, and I was given a copy of Baha'u'llah's The Hidden Words. It's a little black book with gold writing. Mm-hmm. And I remember... It, it felt, I don't know, it felt exciting, but also mm. kind of suspicious. Like I was aware that there were accents and mm. and hyphens in the wrong places, or, or what seemed like they, they were to me. Sure. And I brought it in, and I went into my bedroom that night, and I sat on the floor, much in the same way that I had sat with those other youth, and started to thumb through the pages of that book, and... You know, the, you know, the first thing that you hear in that book is, this is that which hath descended from the realm of glory, uttered by the tongue of power and might, and revealed to the prophets of old. We have taken the inner essence thereof and clothed it in the garment of brevity as a token of grace unto the righteous. And I still reme- remember reading the invocation and you know, thinking about, I guess, the magnitude of that voice and, you know, turning the page, O Son of Spirit, my first counsel is this, possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart. And that initial injunction, my first counsel is this, possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart, and with a promise that thine may be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. And I read on, and the second of these hidden words says, O Son of Spirit, the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom if thou desirest me, and neglect it not, that I may confide in thee. As I started to read some of these utterances, I think I was wholly surprised and really disarmed by the authority with which the voice spake, Mm -hmm. but also the, the resonance with what I can only describe as my own soul. Like, wherever that authority was, whatever those words were, if there was something from God, that was from God. Mm-hmm. Not any better, not any worse, but clearly the seamless voice that could speak to the soul of human beings. And I think very soon after, I remember on the first night in particular, reading an utterance that said, Veiled in my immemorial being, And in the ancient eternity of my essence, I knew my love for thee. Therefore I created thee, have engraved on thee mine image, and revealed to thee my beauty. And I think when I first heard these, I didn't know what to make of them. I didn't know anything about the Baha'i faith, per se. I didn't know whether hearing the words of Baha'u'llah and thinking that they spoke truthfully to the state and capacity and potential of my own soul meant anything in terms of whether I would become a Baha'i or whether I was Catholic 
I didn't know anything about Baha'u'llah or the exiles or Iran or Akka. I had never read the Quran. I had never investigated religion seriously. Mm-hmm. I think what was a great gift in my life is that something allowed me to recognize that the same elegant and loving voice that spoke out in the Gospels about Jesus spoke in these utterances and spoke of a nobility and a generosity, of a endless capacity for virtue that existed in me that I always you know, had to, at the back of my mind, assume existed in me or know existed in me, but that I had more or less given up on. How old were you, Brett? I, I was 16 at mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, the few years of high school, especially the time living in Lowen, I had just gotten mixed up in whatever came along. And mostly, you know, I had great friends that I liked to be with, and I felt very estranged from, from my father especially. Mm-hmm. But certainly most of my family you know, hadn't performed well in school and I think had grown to see myself through a lot of other people's eyes and not like what I saw especially. And it was special, although it was a, it was a long road. I didn't become a Baha'i for, for a couple more years, but mm-hmm. to hear this voice that really saw beauty without distinction in human beings. Mm-hmm. So you sort of put it aside for a while after that experience? Well, I don't think that I put it aside, but it was, as I mentioned, I think I was probably late in my 16th year, and I graduated mm-hmm. at 17. Although I barely got in under the wire for graduation, I guess that was about a year later, and I had committed to enlist in the Navy sometime in the middle of that senior year. Mm-hmm. So it was probably about a year later after this first acquaintance with the faith, that I left town, and as I mentioned, went to Florida, and I was gone for the next two years. Mm -hmm. And during most of that time, and certainly during my senior year of high school, without knowing a whole lot about the faith, I guess I more or less considered myself as much a Baha'i as anything. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know much about what there was. And to tell you the truth, there was a large barrier to me actually defining myself as a Baha'i, And I think that has to do with the friends that I knew who were in the faith. One of my best friends, his name is Brandon Bullock. He now lives in Phoenix, Arizona. And at the time, he lived in the San Fernando Valley, and he was one of the people I met that first day at the Baha'i Youth Workshop. He and his brother, Brian, his father, Burl, who became really my spiritual father, and a number of other friends that I met through the workshop on those initial days, there was such a high degree of virtue that characterized their lives and such a commitment to the principles of the faith, such a strong grounding in not only the knowledge of the oneness of all people, but in embodying that through action in a kind of daily way. For lack of a better way to put it, I knew that they were very special people. Like, I admired them immensely, and yet I was certain that I wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. As much as I could admire the words of Baha'u'llah and the teachings, and as much as I could even feel sort of inspired or changed by them because of what they seemed to bring out in me or see in me, I certainly didn't think that that was going to achieve any kind of transformation whereby I could become like the people that I so admired. Mm -hmm. Did you continue going to the workshop while you were in high school? Yeah, I went some, but again, I lived about 25 miles away probably from where it met. So I think for the next year, I probably attended 
it met weekly, and I probably attended nine or ten weeks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that was a fair amount, I guess. And I really liked being there, and I watched the first Baha'i fast take place, certainly that I had ever seen, mm-hmm. uh, among some of those teenagers. Why don't you explain what the Baha'i fast is? Well, the Baha'is fast from March 2nd to March 20 every year. It's a time when nothing passes through the lips of the Baha'is between sunrise and sunset. The Baha'i months are each 19 days each, and this is the last of the month, the month of Allah, or loftiness. During this month, it's a time for Baha'is to really recognize the source of their sustenance. And it's so easy for people, for all of us, it doesn't matter what religion, to base our lives around material sustenance. We think a lot and talk a lot about where the next meal will happen, where we're going to have lunch today and kind of build it up and center it in the day as the thing that defines and breaks up work days or study days to some extent. And for the Baha'is, this is meant to be a time of an outward expression of, you know, an ongoing process of refinement and purification and a time when the spiritual repast or midday meal would would really take center stage. So I think it's a time when one is forced to think about the soul and the animating light of us all. Mm-hmm. rather than what keeps us from feeling fatigue in the way of sleep or food. Mm-hmm. So this was your first encounter of the Baha'i Fest? Yeah, and I think being 16, 17 years old, I was pretty preoccupied with what people could do or they couldn't do. You know, I really thought a lot about laws, and that was another thing that I thought about the faith. I mean, for me, it was defined very much by people who didn't drink, people who stopped eating for 19 days in the year, people who were very kind and very generous-spirited, people dedicated to the oneness of mankind. So there were these wonderful principles on one hand, but then there was a lot of obedience to what didn't seem an arbitrary set of laws. I mean, they seemed like useful enough laws if one was going to live by them, but I didn't understand any kind of special wisdom why one would want to not drink alcohol or not engage in premarital sex or whatever the laws they followed were. Mm -hmm. And so I I characterized the fast in this way, I think, at the time, at least to myself, where I I saw people abstaining from food and and following a law that I didn't entirely get. Mm -hmm. So let's jump ahead. You came back from the Navy, and you started playing music with some of the Baha'i friends. What was going on in your life during that time period? Well, I was working and living in Hollywood, as, as I said, mostly doing telemarketing there, and there were a number of Baha'i friends who were involved in telemarketing in Hollywood at that time. So <laughs> so I, I was in at a company where I knew a couple of these friends, and I was playing music and preparing to go back to school specifically for music. Mm-hmm. And during high school and during my time in the Navy and certainly during those couple of years, as I said, I was playing in a reggae band and a lot of my friends were into Rastafarianism and all kinds of spiritual inquiry, but much of it a, a pretty drug-laden culture as well. Mm-hmm. To some degree, I was involved in this culture. To a fairly healthy degree, I was involved <laughs> in that culture. But I think what really did it for me was trying to achieve some transcendent experience. I think that I had come first into contact with even the idea of, you know, there's a line in The Seven Valleys when Baha'u'llah says, think thyself only a puny form when within thee the universe is folded. Mm. 
but that kind of line and those stirred me a lot mm-hmm. in that first year of acquaintance with the faith. And while I was in the, away in the Navy, the hidden words and those mystical utterances and things from the Seven Valleys very much pushed me toward some realm of contemplating the inner reality of man. When I got out of the Navy, I was, as I said, about half in what I knew of the faith, which was beautiful people that I didn't measure up to, and incredibly powerful mystic utterances. I kind of combined that with the kind of people I did know about, which was chiefly people who were in a music and drug-laden culture, like I said, but that were on the spiritual side of that. Mm-hmm. And I greatly admired musicians uh, like Bob Marley, people who were foregrounding you know, the central, I guess, battle of existence, a kind of high-stakes good and evil virtue versus what he would call Babylon. Mm. I guess I participated in both worlds. I hung out with my Baha'i friends and respected them, Mm -hmm. but then went up on the mountaintop, spent time trying to find out where God was. Right, with a little help with your friends. Yeah, with a little help, certainly. (laughs) I mean, I was smoking marijuana, deathly afraid of anything besides marijuana. But definitely smoking marijuana with friends and playing music and trying to raise my consciousness to some kind of understanding and embodiment of a real feeling of oneness, I guess, for things even beyond, you know, men and women. Mm -hmm. Where I was really lucky is that I saw a lot of upside in those communities in a sort of collective endeavor, I guess, some of the remnants of some of the communes that thrived and then fell apart in the 60s and 70s, I also saw the limitation without some kind of structure. Mm-hmm. And I knew enough about the faith. And as I mentioned, uh, the person who was most significant in my life died a few years ago. His name is Burl Bullock. By the grace of God, he would stay up with me night after night. No matter what stage I was in, from that last year of high school through the Navy, through all the time hanging out with the Rastafarians and playing reggae, he would stay up with me night after night, and we would talk about the teachings and the writings of Baha'u'llah. And it was an utterly free-from-judgment kind of forum and kind of discussion. One thing that we talked a lot about was Baha'u'llah's concept of law. Hmm. I mean, he would call his believers to observe his commandments, for the love of his beauty, for the love of the beauty of God, and would say that the commandments of God are the lamps of his loving providence and the keys of his mercy, in fact, the place where real freedom existed. As much as I might have wanted to fight that, that made a lot of sense. It never stopped making sense that ultimately there was a way where some of the baseline decisions in life could be made for us where we could not have to wrestle with them and we could kind of raise ourselves to a greater height and take on tests or decisions that were, you know, that mattered more. I ended up kind of with a foot in both of these worlds. Mm-hmm. And I, I had never declared myself as a Baha'i. I still probably didn't know entirely what that would entail. But I had no doubt from the beginning that that voice that spoke through Baha'u'llah was the voice of God, if, if any voice ever spoke with the authority of God. Hmm. I understood that Baha'u'llah's concept of God was the only one which I could ever relate to, that God was an unknowable essence, 
that the door to the knowledge of the Ancient of Days had ever been closed in the face of men. But through this point, this point of revelation, something of the kind of light or effulgence of God had been made available. And I completely was in accord, just by nature, with the principle that this light would have shined through many lanterns, Baha'u'llah, Krishna, Zoroaster, Moses, and Muhammad. And I think for a while, for a couple of years, really, I just needed to grow detached from a lot of ideas about myself. And especially, I needed to detach from my idea that who the Baha'is were, this special rank that I had ascribed to them, and the sort of diminished rank that I had assigned to myself, uh, needn't be the case. That ultimately, this was my judgment, and probably had nothing to do with the way that God himself would think about human beings. So at the end of maybe a year and a half of real wrestling while I was living in Hollywood with spiritual search and feeling like the oneness that I wanted to be a part of was even bigger than the Baha'i faith, that that was one emanation maybe of it, I started to take seriously the idea that without some kind of laws and some kind of structure and some kind of single horizon for humanity to turn to, there was no way to do much practically in the world. And no way really to, to achieve systematic and, and consistent progress as an individual soul trying to, to attain some sense of himself and his role in the world. Mm. So I started to read. That's all I can say. <laughs> I was hugely academically inclined as, as a really small person until maybe 10, 11 years old. And then I had been utterly uninclined <laughs> academically. Or I just didn't didn't care about school through most of junior high and high school. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I, I, I technically failed out of high school and was received back a couple of times. But this time, for the first time in my life, I started to take seriously uh, some of Baha'u'llah's injunctions and this idea of independently investigating truth, which is foregrounded in his revelation. And so I started to read and not take it at face value the idea that the religions were one or that all of the prophets had essentially the same spiritual message. What I did is I spent about a year of my life, or a year and a half, really, the next year and a half, just reading through all of the books that claimed to be holy that I could find. Somehow, in the back of my mind, I had started to know that Baha'u'llah had offered me a great gift of recognizing the oneness of religion. Mm. Not the oneness of religion in any kind of bumper sticker sense, like it might be great if we all got along and, you know, everybody's spiritual and everybody's divine, but that God actually had put into motion one essential unified religion in progressive steps. That was spellbinding because its implications for the world, it recognizing that they were all kind of these, you know, many rivers that were going to empty into the same sea. Can you explain this concept of the oneness of religion that Baha'u'llah speaks of? Baha'u'llah says that each of the great manifestations of God, there are nine in recorded history, nine figures who came and made a claim to essentially exist at the threshold between the uncreate and the created world. They claim to be lanterns from which the light of God shined. Many people will think of, you know, Christ saying, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And this is, you know, taken as the channel to God in this age could only be Jesus. There's no other way while God is, while Jesus is speaking 
with the authority and the words of God himself. Mm -hmm. But then there's a time when Muhammad says, I am the first Adam, I am the first Moses, I am the first Jesus. Essentially that there's no way to come to God except through him in this dispensation. Mm. What Baha'u'llah says is that when a messenger defines the path to God, they're doing so for a particular point in the evolution of humanity that humanity has a spiritual maturation to undergo as well as a technological one or a social one. This spiritual evolution is characterized by essentially what are a number of divine springtimes, that just like the seasons in a year, a new springtime coming doesn't somehow invalidate or make evil or blaspheme the last springtime. And nobody would ever get to next year's springtime at the end of a long winter and say, well, I don't need spring this year. Last year's springtime is good enough for me. Mm. Right? We don't mm -hmm. think of seasons and natural cycles as somehow one being better than another one or one canceling the other one out. It's just a natural unfoldment of, of history. And Baha'u'llah says the same thing about religion, essentially that it's cyclical, that it's universal, and that it's changeless in the, in the past and in the future. He says this is the changeless faith of God, eternal in the past, eternal in the future. So essentially, every 500, 1,000 years, one of these great figures comes to renew the, the spiritual springtime on the planet. So there's so many invocations and so many messages in the different holy books about the end of the world. Right? But also Aztecs and Mayan religion had a concept of the end of the world when the sun would cease to give its light. And during these times, some great God-man would come to the world and sacrifice himself so that the sun could once again pour forth light and reinstill in everything a new life. And Baha'is see very much religion's unfoldment in this way, mm -hmm. that every 500 or 1,000 years, as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, from age to age, a lack of righteousness sets in, right? Destruction sets in, in the face of men, the face of God. And at this time, he says, I come again into the world to renew this sense of righteousness, to renew this spirit. Mm. And so each time one of these figures, Zoroaster or Moses or Christ or Muhammad, comes to the world, they set in motion a number of spiritual forces to literally remake the world and remake all the human beings within it. So when Baha'is think of the dead being called forth from their graves, it's this kind of resurrection that they expect. But through the vitalizing breeze of Baha'u'llah's revelation, just as it did with when Jesus came, that mankind would be instilled with a new spirit and be exalted to a higher plane of unity. So you were doing a lot of reading. So I spent time reading these books, because I think I had heard the Baha'is talk a lot about the unity of religion, and I didn't really understand it primarily. And so I spent time, you know, reading, uh, because I wanted to feel truth. There were promises in these holy books that if sought as humbly as one could get before God to know the truth, one would be led. Seek and ye shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. Mm. So I spent a lot of time in the parks and on the mountaintops, and I read things like the Essene Gospels and went up into the mountains and fasted for a week at a time, and was fairly urgent about finding what was really true. I was given, again, in a long line of great gifts, 
a great gift of really reading the Bhagavad Gita and feeling like Krishna knew my soul better than I did. And he knew it in exactly the same way that I had experienced in, I guess, the most religious moments, the, the most beautifully religious moments I had experienced as a Catholic growing up, the things that I had understood and experienced with the Baha'is. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of aggressively pursued feeling Islamic, feeling truly Hindu, feeling what the early Jews, what I thought they might have felt when these books had come to them. And I tried to take seriously the idea that, you know, although there's two billion Christians on the planet, at one point there were only some fishermen, some forgotten people, who had to make a hard decision whether to follow this message or not. And surely they must have been able to do it on its own merits without any forerunning cross-section of humanity. Mm. And so I did my best to feel truly a part of all of those religions. And at the end of that search, I had almost put it off for about a year and a half. I began to really really entertain and really explore uh, the texts of Baha'u'llah themselves. And the first book that I read was a book called The Epistle to the Son of the Wolf. It's kind of a mind-scrambling book written late in the life of Baha'u'llah with a lot of quotations from other addresses. Baha'u'llah had written a series of letters while he was imprisoned in a place called Adrianople, which is modern-day Edirne, and he had written a number of tablets and addresses to the kings and the rulers of the world, to the Pope, to President Woodrow Wilson, to the Shah of Persia, to Sultan Abdulaziz, uh, all over the world, to the leaders and rulers, he had written and essentially said that the time for the ingathering of humankind had come, offering them a place at, at this table and offering what he called the most great peace. That is, the, the time of the recognition of the oneness of the human family, offering it to them at that time. Essentially, leaders and rulers acted the way we might expect if some exile and prisoner from Persia wrote to them saying, God has come back and he speaks through me. Mostly they ignored his address. Mm -hmm. But as I read these addresses, and as I read the words and the prophecies enclosed in the epistle to the Son of the Wolf, I felt like my fingers could shoot light. Mm. I was just full. Instantly, or very quickly, some of the things I was holding on to, I mean, I... I'm plenty human, and I continue to be so. But a lot of the things that really held me back in terms of my attachment to lifestyle choices, Mm -hmm. and more importantly, my attachment to my sense of myself as somehow degraded, just went away. Mm -hmm. I just felt felt new. And I felt like if, if there was something of being reborn or called forth from the grave of self and desire, that I had been able to experience it. And it changed my life radically. So how did it change your life? There I was, 22 or so, and I had decided that everything I'd ever heard, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, the things my family believed were far realer than I ever could have guessed. And that they had happened, right? That Christ himself had returned but not with fire and brimstone and angels scattering across the sky, but that in a very similar way to the first time, like Christ says, perhaps as a thief in the night, 
like when Christ tells those parables of the bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom, some of them with lanterns watching in the darkness of the night and spying out the bridegroom when he comes and going into the feast, while most of the women had missed him, I decided that Christ had really returned in the person of Baha'u'llah. And I was excited. I mean, I was more than excited. I was ecstatic. It was because all of the exercise of religion that I knew about, all of the showing up at church, and the core of those prayers, like I said, praying that his will would be done here as it is there, were possible. And that Baha'u'llah's message had not faulted humanity for either believing rightly or disbelieving. He had not come back and raised some people to heaven and condemned others to hell, but what he had actually done was suffered for humanity again, offered them a beautiful vision of a way they could organize themselves and come together and see that their religions really cohered. And yet he had enlisted the help of these human beings themselves to create it. Right, that the New Jerusalem wouldn't just fall out of the sky, but it would be something that we erect. And so there was something to do, and all of a sudden life had a lot more purpose. All of a sudden I started to take a lot of things seriously that I hadn't before. Baha'u'llah places a great deal of emphasis on education and on excellence in all things. And I had been the person who had largely alienated my father by you know, not being excellent in a number of things. And so in addition to changing my lifestyle radically, both the lifestyle that had been you know, dismissive of academics and hanging out at the beach, as well as the lifestyle that was up on the mountaintop smoking marijuana and meditating and trying to find God, right. both of them kind of fell away. The intensity of spiritual search, I think, stayed, but so did a commitment to living in the world and to doing something to better my own station and the peop- the, that of those people around me. So I went back to school. As I mentioned, I was studying in school at a place called the Musicians Institute in Hollywood. I was playing guitar and studying music theory and arrangement and such there. And that had led me to maybe take a couple classes here and there at at City College. So for the first time in the wake of this, I began to study other subjects, Mm. English and literature, history, philosophy, religion. I started to study with such zeal, I mean, the real zeal born out of my religious inquiry of the previous two years, that, you know, after investigating the different religions and then after reading everything that I could in the faith, I started to take seven and eight and nine classes at a time just in a couple of semesters at City College, quickly transferred to the University of California at Berkeley. And so I probably spent a year and a half, I think, at L.A. Valley Junior College in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. you know, doing very well in, in school, mm. single-minded in pursuit of understanding language and philosophy and religion especially better. It's... I mentioned that I was playing music in Hollywood, and I had gotten really interested in songwriting and the capacity of songwriting and words and language especially to change human behavior, or to stir up kind of the virtue latent within people or make them think more of themselves. I mean, as has Mm. happened, you know, through Bob Dylan and all sorts of people Mm. over the ages. Mm -hmm. And I think that as my religious search kind of emptied out into the ocean of Baha'u'llah's revelation, I started to 
become more and more interested in words themselves. Mm. And so when I went back to school, I started to study poetry proper and drama and literature and thinking about the way words were put together and the way that they had multiple meanings and the way that they had artistic effect on people, the way that they could be beautiful. Mm-hmm. That was, a, I guess, a preoccupation of sorts. It's what drew me to music, why things were beautiful and how to make them more beautiful mm. became a real concern, and I found a venue for it, an academic venue, to kind of explore the question. Mm. Rapidly, I kind of progressed, and I was doing a lot of creative writing at the time. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I guess I went through junior college in, in that year or so, and then transferred to Berkeley. And I was trying to study English literature, as well as read history and study religion. And I decided that although religion had to be a sort of avocation and there would never be a time where spiritual search wouldn't be at the heart of my life, so I felt like vocationally I ought to do something else and something that, if anything, would help me bring out more meaning from the study of religion. Mm-hmm. So one other thing that was exciting about the faith was how young in its development it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that most of the world didn't know so much about the faith, that there were so many people to tell that the Michelangelos and Leonardos of the Baha'i faith were yet to come in many instances, that there were a great number of heroes, people who really sacrificed for the faith, not just the people in the heroic age in the early or the mid-19th century, but also people who had really suffered in the Iranian Revolution to bring the faith to so many American people. I became excited about the idea that there were many people left in the world that didn't even have the opportunity to choose to investigate Baha'u'llah's revelation for themselves. And so thinking about what I had been thinking about in terms of music and the arts to spread uh, different messages of peace or oneness or whatever I thought was worthy, Baha'u'llah's revelation really took precedence in that way. And I started to explore writing with the idea of becoming a better advocate or a better presenter of the revelation of Baha'u'llah. I started to pursue English literature, a degree at Berkeley, for this reason, hoping chiefly to chronicle aspects of the faith that were undocumented, to do some kind of work with many of the writings in Arabic and Persian, all of the writings at the core of the faith. I thought there might be a lot of work to do in communicating truths and aspects and history of the faith in a variety of ways. So I finished a degree in English and studied classical languages at Berkeley and then thought about teaching English and for a while did on a number of levels at high school and I taught some poetry classes for gifted and talented children in a program in California. But I was mostly focused on going to graduate school and it was about three years. During that three years, I met Gladys, my wife. Mm -hmm. I stayed around Berkeley working with some professors who were very special to me and then applied to graduate schools also in English literature and started the program here in Cambridge five years ago. I'm about a year away from finishing my PhD. Mm. I write on Shakespeare and the aesthetics of performance and repertory casting and in some ways studying Shakespeare and theater in the way that I do combines both a love of language and literature and academic writing, but also performance. I work Mm. in the theater as well as Mm. write on literature, directing plays. 
do you see yourself staying in the academic world after you get your PhD? It's difficult to say. In some measure, yes. My wife finished medical school this past year, and she's doing internship now and has about four years to complete her training as an ophthalmologist. Mm. And during that time, I certainly expect to teach English and literature. While I'm around a campus, I'm pursuing learning Arabic and Persian, and I hope to be able to continue, especially with Arabic. In the long term, we expect to be out of the country. We'd like to be abroad somewhere. We think increasingly about potentially going to the Middle East for a few years and finding a way to work there. Mm. Gladys can work there, certainly, and I could teach in a university there, and, and we'd raise kids that would have access to Arabic schools. But the, the greater purpose might be, and this is just speculation because it's so many years in the future already, mm. but we'd like to wind up probably either in the Indian subcontinent or, or in Africa, in a place where we feel like our collective impact could be mm. more immediate. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of skills that we have, those being you know, specialized skills in medicine and special skills in English language, would be more rare than they are here. Mm -hmm. It could end up totally different from that, so we don't know. There's a great demand for ophthalmologists. In Africa, I think there's mm. one for maybe 1.5 million people. Mm. It's like having one ophthalmologist for all of Boston, which mm. is unimaginable. Right. People plot and God plots. As the Quran says, God is the best of plotters. Well, Brad, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was very interesting. Sure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brett Gamboa, a Baha'i now living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, finishing up his Ph.D. in English and Literature. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.